0: Live from of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Arya Bramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. All right, Shalom Fellowship,
1: great to see you guys. So nice to see you. It's 6 p.m. here in Israel, <laughs> and I haven't had any food or water today, so I'm a little bit woozy, but seeing all of your beautiful faces and just being together now, it's just Just reading the chats from Norway and from Germany and from California and Oregon and Kansas and Africa, it's just so, like, literally life-giving for me. And so today is a day, um, things move a little bit slower. It's the 17th of Tammuz. It's a fast day. This is the day that we commemorate that the Jerusalem walls were breached and the downfall of Jerusalem began. Three weeks from now, we celebrate or commemorate the 9th of Av, and that's when the temple was destroyed. So we're sort of entering into a three-week period. It's a little bit heavier time, a little bit more of a a sad time. We're a little bit more um, cautious and doing dangerous things. It's just not a good time for uh, the people of Israel. These are like not good times. Um, But the prophet Zechariah says that these days are soon to turn into days of celebration. And I honestly feel that when we are gathered here together, somehow from around the world, it's like one step closer to that. You know, it's just amazing to think about the Jewish people have fasted for well more than a thousand years, 2000 years, almost century after century, generation after generation, remembering and mourning over Jerusalem. It's like our temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and we still feel the pain of losing our dream. And no matter how you cut it, um, if you feel it, you don't, you take a day and you fast from food and water, that's going to be a different kind of day. And for generation upon generation, we've just been holding this space, waiting for our return to Jerusalem, waiting for our return to the old city, waiting for our return to the Temple Mount. And even now, it's like we're almost the last few yards. We're almost there, but we're not there yet. And we've waited long enough. We can wait a few more days, a few more months. Um, You know, we're taught that the second temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred. And on this day, for us to gather together in this fellowship and express the most unconditional love of any place that I know in the world where so many backgrounds and so many people come together to learn to pray just it's one step closer to rebuilding Jerusalem and so let's take a moment and with our prayers add one more stone in the rebuilding of our capital Hashem master of the universe we come here together every week and dedicate this time to you starting our week with Jerusalem on our minds and in our hearts this gathering we dedicate to your city to your temple, to your throne on earth. May you be the king of our lives. May your will be done. May the light of Jerusalem shine forth like a beacon on top of a mountain calling on your people to return. As we see all these lies and injustices in the world, hate and war, may we continue to rebuild Jerusalem, the city of truth, the city of justice, a city of unity, a city of love. May this fellowship be our prayer in our lives, in our action to see Jerusalem become a house of prayer for all nations. Amen. All right, so I want to start off this fellowship with some context. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce Rabbi Arya bramowitz because he's going to kick off this fellowship and help us connect the dots between the time we're in, the 17th of Tammuz, the Torah portion that we're reading, um, it's all interconnected, and all of it is meant to speak to us. Meaning, this week is meant to be guided um, by what we've learned over Shabbat, by what we're experiencing right now, and it's um, it's like to live within the rhythm of the Torah, to live within those vibrations. And Ari's been sick for about a week now. It's not clear what he has, but he's been pretty much bedridden for about a week. And I'd like to say that he's just being lazy but he's really sick. (laughs) Um, And when it it rains, it pours. Ari has had a few rough weeks, but right now he's with us uh, to teach us. And uh, I'm glad that he had the strength to get in front of that computer screen and pour his heart out for us. But he's going to lay the foundation that will be a good base for us to build the rest of the fellowship upon. So Ari, please take it away.
2: Great. So uh, first of all, Jeremy, thank you very much. Um, It has been definitely a rough few weeks for me, but not only for me, I just want to, before I start, Uh, Say to Irene, I understand Irene lost her mother, and that's an unimaginably difficult thing. So may Hashem uh, console you and your family, Irene, and uh, may only joy be for you and your family in the future. So uh, all friends out there, I hope Hashem is blessing you abundantly. It's, It's been, as Jeremy said, a very difficult week for me. My shoulder's been healing, and I'm grateful for all your messages and prayers. I came down with this mysterious sickness antibiotics didn't help at all. It's really knocked me out. Apparently people all over the country are coming down with some different forms of it. But, uh, but either way, the bottom line is I haven't been sick like this in years and it's been a humbling experience to say the least. Of I think being sick in general is a reminder of how fragile we all really are and how dependent we are, not only on Hashem, but on each other. I told Jeremy just a couple of days ago, that I didn't think I could deliver a fellowship, let alone prepare one, just deliver one to say the words. Hashem has given me a wave of strength right now that I'm out of bed. But, uh, but Jeremy told me, don't worry about it. Even though he just had a couple of days, I should heal and get better. And he'd be happy to do it. So thank you for rising to the occasion, Jeremy. You're a good friend. You're a good friend. And Shana has been super loving and helpful. And Dvash, forget about it. She's been emptying my sock drawer and bringing me my socks one pair at a time, emptying the drawers in my room. She's been very helpful. As you know, we don't, we don't post anything on social media. So you're the family, you're who I'm sharing this with. So I just have to share a little video of Dvash helping me empty my drawers. Oh my goodness, that's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you have anything else to give me? Oh, wow. Thank you for that, Devash. You're so wonderful. Is there anything else? Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Oh, it's so good to have all of this stuff that I needed to be taken out of there. And she's just so diligent and... to be in with me all the time so she's just so delicious so anyways that being said it's been hard to focus on anything I couldn't study Torah I couldn't read almost anything I couldn't focus so I ended up uh, praying I ended up talking to Hashem a lot a lot more than usual which is actually one of the great messages in this Torah portion in the portion of Balak the power of speech and the power of, of prayer. And the essence of today itself, it hints to this truth because today's a fast day. And Jeremy's fasting, I'm fasting, and it ends, it's a summer day, so it ends at 8.30. No food, no water, while I'm sick, not a simple thing. But it's, as Jeremy said, it's the 17th of the Hebrew month of Tammuz. And Jews around the world, we don't eat and we don't drink and we re-experience the fall of Jerusalem. At least that's what we uh, aspire towards. We want to hopefully rectify within ourselves the flaws and blemishes that led to the destruction. And that's part of what the fast is about. That's what it's for. And today starts the period, as Jeremy said, known as the three weeks in which we, it's a type of mourning which really culminates in Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which is the day that both temples were destroyed as well as so many other tragedies in Jewish history. When that day comes, we'll actually get there and experience it together. So the question is why? Do we mourn Jerusalem? We've discussed this before. You know, it's not just a city. It's a meeting place in which the most intimate uh, and revealed relationship between the nation of Israel and the God of Israel was manifest. When the temple was destroyed, God's greatest revelation and connection, not only to the Jewish people, but to all of mankind, was lost to the world. And that's why the Jewish people are completely and totally obsessed with the Beit HaMikdash. Because on the deepest level, our mission in the world is defined by it. You walk into my house, right there in the middle of my living room, picture of the beta HaMikdash. Same with Jeremy. And we have a, a, a place that we scrape the paint off the wall to remember if our home, if the beta mikdash isn't complete, if God's home isn't complete, how could our home be complete? So here are the, just the five horrible events in history, which we keep in mind today on the 17th of Tammuz. Five events. Number one, after hearing about the Golden calf. Moshe descended Mount Sinai and threw the tablets to the ground and shattered them. That happened on the 17th of Tammuz. And the second thing, during the times of the first temple, due to the heavy siege on Jerusalem, the Kohanim, the priests, were not able to acquire any more animals for sacrifices. So at that point, the sacrifices had to stop. It may seem like like an arbitrary thing, but if you can imagine it, that was a crazy trauma for the nation of Israel. Number three, before the destruction of the Second Temple, the walls of Jerusalem were breached. If my math is correct, 1,948 years ago, today, 90 days, unless my math is wrong, which it may be, I'm not thinking that clearly. Fourth thing was the Roman general Appius Thomas. He burnt a Torah scroll, which, according to Rav Shraga Simmons, in many ways set the precedent and started the pattern of millennia of burnings of Torah scrolls and ancient. Jewish text. And the fifth one was that an idol was placed in the sanctuary of the Holy Temple, which was a of the deepest and most unimaginable depth that the mind could fathom, putting an idol in the sanctuary of the Holy Temple. So now to highlight how deeply our mission and identity is connected to Jerusalem and the Beta Mikdash, we tied in, we turn exactly to this week's Torah portion. I was even conflicted about whether to share this, but I just had to because there's no chance that anyone that is solely reading the English could ever catch the teaching that I'm going to share because to the sages of Israel and even just to the average Hebrew reader, it's impossible to miss. So here's the story as we know it. Just a little background. The nations were terrified of the Jewish people and the Moabites and the Midianites who had been sworn enemies of Israel, they were all of a sudden united as allies in their shared fear Of the approaching nation of Israel. And they understood that the source of Israel's strength is spiritual, so they hired a spiritual mercenary named Bil'am to attack the Jewish people. Now although he claimed to be only willing and interested in doing God's will, you can tell by his actions that he very much desired to fulfill the mission to curse the Jewish people. He was eager, and he was excited, and he wakes up early to saddle his donkey. It's reminiscent of, of Abraham, but a different word was used. The word that was used, as a matter of fact, here was vayakam bokir. he arose in the morning. Whereas usually the word for waking up is vayashkem baboker, he awoke in the morning. Hinting to us that he was so excited to curse the Jewish people that he couldn't sleep the entire night before. So he didn't awake, he just arose. Either way, he was a bad guy, and he was eager to curse Israel, and off he went. And uh, so here's the famous story. On the way there, his donkey saw an angel of God in front of him that Bilam himself couldn't see, which should have been enough in and of itself to humble him that his donkey was a greater prophet than he was. But it didn't humble him, and he veered to the side. The donkey veered to the side, pressing the leg of Bilam against the fence by the side of the road, and Bilam hit him once. And then the donkey moves forward and then the Bilam hit him again and then again. And at that point, the donkey turns to him and says in chapter 22, verse 8, Ma asiti l'cha ki shalosh regalim? Ma asiti l'cha ki shalosh regalim? Now, even in the JPS translation that I looked up, which is a good one, those words are translated as the donkey saying to Bilam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? But in the Hebrew, the words are not the normal words for three times, which would have been shalosh ta'amim, but they were a really unique and unparalleled usage of the words shalosh regalim. Shalosh regalim. Now, some of you may immediately recognize these words for what they are. The shalosh regalim are the three high holidays, the three times a year when the nation of Israel leaves their home and ascends to Jerusalem for feasts and sacrifices and connection, both with each other and with Hashem in the Beit HaMikdash. And these were indeed strange words for the donkey to use to describe being hit three times. Now Rashi, we quote Rashi a lot. He's a great sage in Israel. He explains that the words God spoke through the donkey were an allusion exactly to that, to the temple. That the donkey was saying, "Look at you, Bilam! You're hitting me because you're in such a rush to go curse this holy nation that will serve us." Seeking to uproot this nation that will ascend to the temple three times a year, the Shalosh Regalim was an allusion to the Shalosh Regalim of the Jewish people going to the temple. The Islam was a prophet. He was a great prophet. If it was the truth that he really wanted, wanted the truth, he would have understood that. He would have heard that message. But he didn't want the truth. He wasn't open to being humbled. And there, you know, there are numerous sages that elaborate on this theme but the underlying message is all the same that God was telling Bilaam that he was destined for failure because he was trying to curse the nation that would be ascending to the temple of God in Jerusalem to worship the one true God of Israel and so here we are on the 17th of Tammuz we have about I think a, a two hours left to this fast and we're mourning the destruction of Jerusalem of the walls that led to the destruction of the temple and we're reading about Bilaam going to curse the Jewish people when he's reprimanded by a talking donkey who alludes to the temple. Can you think of another nation in the world that has such a central, fundamental fixation on anything as the Jewish people has on Jerusalem and the Beit HaMikdash? And why? What's it really about? The Beit HaMikdash is about the power of prayer. The Moabites turn to the Midianites to consult with them about how to defeat Israel because of Moshe's connection to Midian, right? He married the daughter of a Midianite priest of Yitro. So they figured that the Midianites had inside info on Moshe Rabbeinu, on Moses, and they did. And what did Midian respond? What was that inside info? They said, quote, his strength is solely in his mouth, meaning in his tefillot, in his prayers. That is ultimately the power of Israel, is in our prayers. And I'll tell you, now that we're back in the land, God is indeed circumcising our hearts and replacing our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And as you know, our mission out here on the Judean frontier is not really to create Judea into this, but to reveal that Judea is a global destination for spirituality and transcendence. And Jeremy's going to talk to you a lot more about this. I know he will. But this, it was so special. It was a landmark event. Here at the Arugot Farms on the Judean frontier, I was, I was so sick, I couldn't go for more than a minute. But we had a great sage of Israel come out and guide over a hundred thirsty Jews for how to speak to God in the most real way. And while I couldn't be there personally, like I said, I did step out on my balcony. And all at once, I heard over a hundred Jews, boys and girls and men and women, all different ages, They were spread out all over the mountain. They had been speaking to Hashem as they were just guided in how to do. And all of a sudden, they all together at once screamed out to the heavens. At this point, it it wasn't even words. It was just a scream from the deepest place in the soul. I could barely breathe for that moment as as tears came to my eyes. And and oh my goodness, did did I feel goosebumps. At that moment, it hit me that it's happening. It's already happening happening we are we're on our way we're on our way to Yerushalayim we're on our way to the Beit HaMikdash we're on our way together and I want to end this message my friends with words from Isaiah the prophet that we read today on this fast day that we actually when we go to synagogue we read them right now they couldn't be more prophetic now I strongly encourage all of you to read through all of it it's Isaiah chapter 55 verse 6 through Isaiah verse 8 but for brevity's sake, I'll start with the part that stood out to me most dramatically. Because to me, it was speaking exactly about us, about our fellowship, about our connection, about this group, about the Beit Mikdash, about where all of them are going. So let me just read it to you from here. It's Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Hashem speak, saying, Hashem will utterly separate me from his people. And let not the barren ones say, behold, I'm a shriveled tree. For thus said Hashem to the barren ones who observe my Sabbath and choose what I desire and grasp my covenant tightly. In my house and within my walls, I will give them a place of honor and renown, which is better than sons and daughters. Eternal renown will I give them will never be terminated. And the foreigners who will join themselves to Hashem to serve him, And to love the name of Hashem. To become servants unto him. All who guard the Sabbath against desecration. And grasp my covenant tightly. I will bring them to my holy mountain. And I will gladden them in my house of prayer. Their elevation offerings and their feast offerings. Will find favor on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The word of my Lord Hashem Elohim. Who gathers in the dispersed of Israel. I shall gather to him even more than those already gathered unto him. Is that unbelievable? That is just a prophecy spoken to us for our times, for our days. If that doesn't strengthen us, the Jewish people, if that doesn't strengthen the nations of Israel who love us and want to cleave to us, if that doesn't strengthen all of you, all of us together, I don't know what will. It talks about the Beit HaMikdash that all of us will be there praying together. May it be soon in our days. Thank you, my beloved friend. Stay in touch. Stay in touch, Jeremy. Stay in touch with Jeremy and with me, and let's all stay connected. Great days are coming. We're in great days right now. Shalom, Jeremy. Back to you.
1: Thank you, Ari. I hope you feel better, my friend. You look great. I, I You look... I, I couldn't even tell right now that you're not feeling well, but thank you for mustering up the strength to make this fellowship possible. Everyone loves you. Um, everyone wishes you a full and speedy recovery. And so, you know, the that you brought out of the Torah portion that Israel's strength is in her mouth in Israel's prayer is exactly in line because I didn't know what you were going to say but that's exactly what we're going to talk about today because I really think that's just where we're being guided on our mountain we had this huge event that was all just about the power of our own personal prayers our own communication the Torah portions talking about communication the power of speech and um, here we are now but before we get to that Uh, Tehillah is going to join us and take us to the next level. The seventh day of Tammuz is a pattern in time, and as we read the parsha, we're starting to like unveil and like unlock what's going on. But if we look around at our lives, we have to see that there are lessons that are being taught directly to us, literally directly to our fellowship, directly to us in our own individual lives. And you know, there's there's fake news, there's fake studies, there are manipulated statistics, there's fake headlines. And nowadays, you don't know where to turn to find truth. And we're just so fortunate because we have this source of timeless ancient wisdom that has served believers and the world for so many years, a source of truth and guidance that can be relied upon without any fear, without any doubt. It's like the purity of the Torah. And we have the pleasure and the privilege of having Tehillah here with us to illuminate our lives with her lessons in Torah, literally every week. She's just constantly lighting up my life. And so we're just uh, honored to have her with us. So here's Tehillah for you. Hey
0: guys. Um, So I wanted to talk today a little bit about this past Torah portion Balak and a bit about the significance of this day, the 17th day of Tammuz. I wanna see if we can tease out um, any kind of interesting connections and lessons from them. So let's start with the special day. Today is the 17th day of Tammuz. I bet a lot of you guys know that this day is a fast day and that it commemorates the day that the walls of Jerusalem were breached by the Romans right before the destruction of the second temple. In the first temple, the walls were also actually breached in Tammuz, but that was the ninth of Tammuz. But the sages didn't want to put too many fasts so close together, so we kind of smushed them all into the 17th day of Tammuz, which is more like salient for us because we're still living the consequences of the second destruction. So when most people think about the fast of the 17th day of Tammuz, they think of it as relating to the destruction of the temple. Uh, Maybe a lesser-known connection is that it was also the day that Moshe smashed the first tablets. When he came down from the mountain and he saw the Jews worshipping the golden calf, he threw the tablets down and they were smashed to smithereens and we lost the potential of having with us the actual tablets that Hashem wrote. So we know this from the Mishnah in the Tractate of um, Ta'anit, and it says that there were five sad things that happened on the 17th day of Ta'muz, the first of which was the breaking of the tablets. But we actually, I mean, how do the sages know that? It, it's actually pretty clear from just a careful reading of the verses, because if we know that the Torah was given on Shavuot, which was the sixth day of Sivan, and then Moshe went up for 40 days to receive, you know, for Hashem to give him the whole Torah, besides for the Ten Commandments, Then he would be expected to come down after completing those 40 days on the 17th day of Tammuz. So can you imagine like what a happy day this had the potential of being? Like if we had just been a little bit more faithful, a little bit more patient, we could have celebrated this day as the day that we got the Torah for real, like the tablets came down to be among us, but instead it turned into a sad day. And then all these other sad things kind of got added into it. Um, and the 17th day of Tammuz isn't just sad by itself, it also kicks off a period of time that's called the three weeks between now and the ninth day of Av, which are generally a sad time of mourning. Um, the ninth day of Av was, as I'm sure many of you know, when the 1st and 2nd temples were destroyed, but the ninth day of Av also has its origins in the desert because the ninth of Av was the day of the spies gave their bad report and it was decreed that most of the people would not be able to enter the land. So while historically these days are like generally thought of as commemorating things that other people did to us, the Babylonians destroyed the first temple, the Romans destroyed the second temple, the original like badness of these days came from our own failings, both of them having their roots in the desert. So when I look at these two failings, they seem to be like the paradigmatic failures that we're always struggling with because they relate to the two primary missions that Hashem has given us in the world as I see them. The first mission is to bring the knowledge of the oneness of Hashem to the world. And the other one is to live as an exemplary people in the land. So in that context, it's like the golden calf was our failing to live up to our first job, right, of bringing monotheism to the world. And not falling into the temptation of idol worship and the ninth of of symbolizes our holding back our unwillingness to recognize that we're supposed to settle the land and you know and and be there and establish our you know our our you know uh, proper and just society there right so our days of mourning are like have these like two bookends of comp- of contemplating these tragedies um that that were kind of a result of these two paradigmatic sins. Something that I think is so interesting and marvelous in Jewish culture is the way we address our tragedies and challenges. I'm not a historian, but I think you can make a reasonable argument that Jews have been the most persecuted people, both in severity and in duration. Like we were had like horrible bouts of of persecution and just like a long time, thousands of years of being persecuted. You would think that we'd be like the most embittered, angry people, just hating everyone, so vengeful. But the sages set forth such an unusual way for us to look at these things. Like, let's take the great tragedies, the destruction of the first temple and the destruction of the second temple. You would think there'd be tons of Jewish texts talking about how awful the Babylonians were and how awful, you know, the Romans were for destroying our temple. You would think that there would be a lot of writing on like the value of revenge and there'd be anger. But when you read the Jewish texts surrounding the destructions, they're all primarily introspective. Our sages teach us that the first temple was destroyed mostly for the sin of idol worship and the second temple for hatred between people, meaning social shortcomings, which kind of goes back to those two primary sins of the 17th of Tammuz and the 9th of Av, all the way back to the desert. So does that mean that a Jew thinks that the only reason the temples were destroyed were because of those sins? No, we know that there were geopolitical realities and there were armies and actual physical bad guys, enemies, people, but the takeaway that we walk away with from our suffering is not directed at them. And they're all the way, you know, by the way, they're all long gone and we're still here maybe because of that, because what we take away from our tragedies is this radical sense of responsibility, personal responsibility, group responsibility. Like what did we do to make this little slice of hell that came onto us even worse. It's like, in what sense could we have been better and deserved maybe a better outcome? It's such a different ethic than what's popular today. Like today, if you're any kind of minority that was ever persecuted or discriminated against, the main focus has become who's at fault, whose grandparents were at fault, whose you know, which statue can we take down because that guy was some way at fault? You know, uh, who has some kind of privilege that makes them at fault even if they weren't born when the bad things happen or didn't even know about the bad things or didn't intend to do anything wrong, right? So now, are they wrong for feeling that? No, not necessarily. I mean, there are people who are responsible responsible for the suffering of others, but it's so different than the Jewish tradition, which is while you are cognitively aware Of the wrongs committed by others your internal energy is always focused on what we can do to make the situation better how can we look inwards you could see it most clearly like physically um, you know you could see it like in Israel so um, so blatantly with the narrative of our neighbors like if you ask our Arab Neighbors, what is the source of your suffering? It's always the Jews. It's the occupation. It's the Nakba. It's a Jew walking around with a flag. It's a Jewish community, uh, you know, some peaceful community somewhere. What will you never hear? You'll never hear somebody say, "Well, maybe it's because of all of our violent terrorism. Maybe it's because of the rejection of the partition plan. Maybe it's because of the war that our, you know, our leaders started in 1948 and in 1967. Maybe it's the fact that our leaders have rejected every peace agreement ever offered." Nope. Whereas in Israel, you would imagine that after all of the terror attacks that we've been through, we would just be this bitter, vengeful people. But it's interesting, you know, when you actually, if you look at the grave of any person in Israel that was uh, killed in a terror attack, it'll say the letters, Hashem which means that his blood should be avenged by Hashem. Why does it say that? Because primarily, well, we know that there was a person who caused this tragedy we say, okay, it's up to Hashem to figure that part out. Hashem will avenge his blood. Our attention is focused inwards. How do we take fuller responsibility, ever more responsibility for what is around us and for what happens to us? So we're heading into this period of time now, these three weeks of reflection to see it's a time to reflect like, okay, things, you know, what's not going right? And where have I fallen short? Not, you know, where has everyone else done to make me, you know, so miserable, but Where have we fallen short on the missions that Hashem has given us? And interestingly, it coincides with having read the Parsha of Balak yesterday. The ways that the Parsha, the way that the Parshas are divided up is so interesting. So the vast majority of this past week's Parsha is the story of the Prophet Balaam. Now King Balak wants to defeat Israel militarily, but in order to do so, he believes that he needs to first weaken them with a curse so he can win in the battle. And Balaam is like he gets there and he "I'll in all trial say whatever Hashem wants It. when he sees Israel he's like you're not going to be able to do this militarily and he ends up giving these blessings that describe the special attributes of Israel and their close relationship with Hashem now the story you would think that the Torah portion would end there that's like a good place to end the story because the story that follows the story of Balaam is the sin of Peor and that seems to be like a separate story more appropriate maybe to be in next week's portion which is the story of Pinchas because Pinchas was the one to stop all of that horribleness right but the story of the sin is actually part of this past week's Torah portion of Balak and not in Pinchas's parsha. so had this just been about the Balam story right Balam doesn't really come out such a bad guy does he like he kind of tries to listen to Hashem and he says that he's going to listen to Hashem and he ends up blessing us he might have been a little too tempted by the money. He might have been a little trigger happy with hitting his donkey, but he doesn't seem like such a bad guy if you just look at that story. But we find out later from Moshe, right after Israel kills Balaam, that in fact he was the instigator of the whole um, like plan to lead Israel to sin at Peor. In chapter thirty one, Moshe wonders, you know, when the Jews go out to fight the Midianites, he says, "Why did you keep the women alive?" And in verse sixteen. He says, hey, uh, sorry, they were the same ones who were involved with the children of Israel and Balaam's advice to betray the Lord over the incident of Peor, resulting in a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So it turns out that Moshe tells us a piece of the puzzle that we didn't know from reading this week's Torah portion, that tempting the Jews to sin with Peor was actually Balaam's idea. So if it was his idea, what was he understanding? How did he get to that idea? It's like he realized when a blessing Israel, that when Israel is in a proper relationship with Hashem and living in a society of holiness, it's hopeless, Balak. You're not going to be able to win them militarily. But at the same time, he realizes if you can sink them spiritually, you won't need to do anything. Their own tragedy is going to happen on its own. And that's actually what happens, right? They worship the Baal Peor and then Hashem sends, um, sends a sickness to, to kill them. So now, and, now, Baal Peor is also a really interesting and gross form of idolatry. I hope there are any kids watching. Like if your kids are watching, cover their ears now for a second. Okay, guys? The way that you would worship the Baal Peor was actually to like go to the bathroom. It was by defecating in front of the idol. It's so gross that you wonder like, why was this so tempting to Israel? Now, uh, Rabbi Yehuda uh, Amital of Blessed Memory said that there's actually a really deep attraction to this kind of thing. And it can be confusing and tempting. On the one hand, you think, oh, it's gross, why would anybody want to do that? But when you think about it a little bit more deeply, it's this idealization of everything that's natural. It's something that we see so much around us today, right? Like, why should I cover my body? Why should I be modest? My body is natural. Why should I limit my urges or my relationships? It's natural. Why should I not talk about certain subjects in public or on television? They're natural. It's really a tempting idea, even for people who believe in God, because... If God made nature, it must be perfect. Let's hold it as the highest ideal. But that's not the message of the Torah. The Torah starts out in the whole throughout the whole book of Reishi with this process of leaving the just nature, moving towards wearing clothes, setting up agriculture, circumcision. All saying, yes, there's nature, but nature is a starting point. We build up right we build off Hashem gives us a job to improve and correct the world not to just wallow in things as their natural order may be so interesting when Moshe dies his place of burial is noted as being across from Peor and when you think about it it's like isn't that almost offensive to Moshe that like to reference where he's buried as being in any way related to Peor like I'm sure you could have like said your latitude and longitude you don't need to talk about Peor but it's like He's there, his final resting place. Like where Moshe is going to be forever is across from Peor. When you're across from something, it's like that is what you're standing up against. I am the alternative to that. What I'm offering you is the Torah that's an alternative to the values of Peor. Like when Moshe dies, you want to know what he symbolizes? He's going to always be standing up against those Peor values, those whatever is natural goes values. And it's so perfect that this week's portion, the Torah you know, we've talked about this in the past, the Haftorah is the part that we read from the prophets that the sages said is a section from the prophets that's somehow profoundly related to the Torah portion. So this week's Haftorah is from Micha chapter five. And it says, your hand will be lifted in triumph over your enemies and over all, and your foes will be destroyed. So, okay, it sounds good, right? This sounds like a, a, a good prophecy. And it says, and in that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from amongst you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down your strongholds. Well, that doesn't sound so good, right? It, it, is this a, is this a good prophecy or a bad prophecy? What's interesting is that Hashem is promising what theoretically sounds like not such a great thing, which is that He's going to destroy our chariots and our fortified cities, right? And you know, and but, but then it's like, why is he? Why is that a good thing? Hashem is saying there's going to come a time where you don't need those things. And why will you not need those things because you're going to have built a society that's on a high enough level to be spiritually fortified in the way that Bilam saw us when he looked at us that first time. Right? So it's like in the end of the Haftorah later on, it says the prophet Micha says he has shown you what is good. Hashem has shown you what is good. What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? So you're, there's going to come a time that you won't actually need chariots and horses because you've fully internalized that acting justly and mercifully is the key. Walking humbly with Hashem is the key. You've taken enough personal responsibility to make such a society that the prophet is envisioning a time when the rest of the battles are going to become irrelevant. They're going to become unnecessary. Just like Bilam pointed out, when we're doing our spiritual missions both vis-a-vis our relationship with Hashem and our relationship with others and in creating an exemplary society there's no point in even trying to defeat us so as we enter these three weeks i hope this is a really productive time for all of us to look at the places where things might be going wrong and to choose not to dwell on maybe who technically caused them and who's responsible but to use this time to see where we may have missed the mark, where can we walk more humbly with Hashem? Where can we take more responsibility to have mercy and to create justice in the places that we have control over to try to take the natural world that Hashem has given us and not just let it stay where it is, but just lift it up a little bit in the realm that we are able to take responsibility for. So see you guys later. Have a great week.
1: Wow, (laughs) Tehillah. (laughs) you're so good the idea of taking full responsibility in this world that's exactly what we need to hear now it's like so many young people are being trained to blame the government blame the people of the past and the Torah is telling us the best way to live is to take complete ownership over your life over your situation radical responsibility you can't change the world outside you but you have complete control of your inner world and if Everyone would take complete responsibility of their inner world and go beyond nature. It's like, how do we go beyond nature? We invite God into our lives to elevate us beyond nature, to guide us to a higher life. You know, some critics of the Bible say the language of the Old Testament, it sounds just too harsh. It makes God look angry and vengeful. and They're just not reading it right. The Torah is coming to warn us if we stay at the level of nature, if we lose our fear of God. And society starts to break down morally because it's the natural thing to do. Disasters will come that will destroy everything you know and leave your world devastated for generations upon generations. Everything you know and everything you love will be destroyed. You think that's a false warning? It's like, you think it sounds too angry? It's like, that's reality. We're still fasting, trying to recover from our mistakes and from the mistakes of our fathers and mothers. Um, but I want to point to the prophets to look even a little bit deeper into what went wrong in the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. Like we have sort of these like mildly, like these like events that had happened, but there's something that's fundamental fundamental that's under it that really is sort of the key to all of these calamities. And hopefully we can like learn from these lessons of our past. So the temple was created to be a place where people could approach God, could sense his presence. They could Um, Have an encounter. I mean, there were laws and rituals that governed the temple service, but the heart of the temple was an encounter with Hashem. It was an experience. And when the temple became a religion and ritual without the heart and spirit that it represented, it was destined to be destroyed and rebuilt. Everything else came from that. And Isaiah, the father of all the latter prophets, introduces his book of prophecy with a warning against that religion and ritual taking place of the spirit. Look at Isaiah chapter one at the very beginning. This is like verses 11 through 17. Why do I need your numerous sacrifices, says Hashem? My soul detests your new moons and your appointed times. They have become a burden upon me. Wash yourself, purify yourself, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice, vindicate the victim, render justice to the orphan, take up the grievance of the widow. Like Saying here, the holidays, the new moons, the appointed times, the sacrifices, your prayers, they're all meant to serve a higher purpose, but as soon as that purpose is missed... The whole enterprise is worthless. Isaiah says it's not just wrong. It's detestable. It's gross. It's a, if you look around the globe, organized religion is collapsing all around the modern world synagogues and churches are not flourishing not in america not in europe not in australia but fundamentally the hu- human nature hasn't changed there's a massive movement of people seeking spirituality a relationship with the sacred meaning in their lives a way to express that spirit cultivate that spirit live by the spirit uh, Abraham, abraham the father of israel the patriarch of the bible he didn't have an organized religion He's the father of many nations, but he wasn't a Jew, a Christian, or a Muslim. He was a seeker, he was a thinker, ultimately he was a believer. He had an intuition and he developed this ability to tune into his own inner voice that was aligned with the will that created this universe. And somehow through him, the universe expressed the most influential man, arguably in human history, gave birth to Western civilization and Eastern civilization for the most part. His life's lesson was teaching us that all of us have that ability to do so, and it doesn't need a religion. Look at what Genesis chapter 12, verse three says. Everyone knows this verse that are lovers of Israel because this is the promise. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you, I will curse. And all families of the earth shall be blessed through you. Somehow through Abraham, all of the families of the earth, all believers will somehow be blessed through Abraham. His blessing to us was the spiritual path that he forged. It's a way of being in the world, a way of living in a relationship with God and with reality. That is the fundamental claim of Abraham's life and the foundation of the Bible. You can hear God's voice in your life, not with your ears, but with your heart through your life experience you can live a guided life we can we can understand god but the bible promises that we can have a relationship with the divine we can be guided by his wisdom and that's how all families of the earth are blessed through him because he taught that everyone from every nation can access that relationship too and in this week's parsha bilham wants to hear from god but it's like he he wants to hear what he wants to hear. And he's not open to what God has for him. And he, I mean, he has a burning angel standing before him with a sword out, ready to strike him down. But his heart is so closed and his eyes are not open to what's manifesting in front of him that he's not really open to that relationship of guidance. He's guided upon a path trying to curse and accomplish his desire. But in the end, bilam is guided to accomplish God's will. And here's the thing. That's always going to happen. His will will always be done, period. And our goal needs to be to try to align with his will as best as we possibly can. Listen and be open to where we should go. Align ourselves as best we can with the good. Align ourselves with our best self. Align ourselves as best we can to God's will. That's the secret of tshuva. That's what repentance really means. Just returning to the original course that is going to unfold anyway that's what's going to happen. You can try to swim against the wave, but most likely that wave is going to crash down on your head. Instead, the purpose of prayer, the purpose of religion should be to help us move with the wave, to ride the wave where it needs to take you. And although Bilham was a prophet, a man of spirit, Bilham misses the mark. So can we. And a relationship with Hashem, it begins inside us. And that's obvious. But most modern schools, even religious schools, they don't really teach their student how to develop a rich inner life. And the ultimate quest throughout this life is internal. That's why Abraham's first call is lech lecha, go to yourself on your way to Israel. That journey to Israel on the outside is really just an internal voyage. And we have to hold this inner tension to live in a dynamic relationship with who we are now, who we could be if we follow that inner quiet voice that emanates from our heart, where we are now and where we could be if we follow God's path. I mean, it's like food for the body. The purpose of religion, it's like to to nourish our soul. But the purpose of religion in the biblical tradition was to facilitate a relationship with our creator. But once your living relationship becomes a rigid religion, it's over. It's like you've missed it, it's gone. It's like you're already too closed-minded, you're closed-hearted, you have your dogmas, you have your rituals, you're doing your thing, and you forgot that this whole point is a dynamic reality of a constant unfolding. Things are emerging, thoughts are appearing, new truths are being revealed all the time. The donkey can see the new truth that's been revealed, but Bilaam just can't see it. That's a message for us. And I think this problem is really articulated by the great one of the greatest sages and mystics in the Middle Ages, the Ramban, Nachmanides. And the Ramban explains that the heart of this idea, he describes a person in his words as a naval birshutatora, Torah, a scoundrel within permission of the Torah, a naval birshutatora. Torah. And obviously based on the teachings of the prophets, he explains that a person can follow every command in the Torah down to the exact detail and still be an absolute scoundrel. He might spend his entire life, fully dedicated to every detail of the law and do everything, check off everything on the list, not just miss it. You're going to fail in life. It's like following the letter of the law. It's like that scoundrel. He violated the very spirit of the law. He like lost the relationship. He missed the big picture, but take a minute to consider that. There's a big picture. There's a meta purpose to life, a spirit that we're meant to live by. And if you miss that, You get an F minus on life. You can attend services and eat the most kosher food and do all of the things that are right and still fail. It's complicated because there's no manual for the spirit of the law. It's like, how do we make sure we don't fall into that trap? And the answer is a living relationship. Everyone gets into emotion. Everyone gets into habits. Everyone takes things for granted. It happens in marriage, at work, with our kids. I mean, it's arguably... The number one most important thing in all relationships is communication. People need to talk. They need to speak. They need to be heard. In religion, we have a lot of rituals, reminders, mitzvahs, activities. But if you leave out the time to just heart-to-heart conversations, real communications, things can go off the rail. The entire book of Psalms is just King David talking to God pouring his heart out before Hashem. Those psalms are wonderful to read and even to pray from, but more than the literature, they're an example of how we're meant to pour our hearts out before Hashem. And so Ari mentioned it, but this week we hosted our first organized spiritual gathering in our house of prayer since Corona broke out. We haven't had any large live events in the farm in this last Thursday. It felt historic. And this is what the place looked like before the people arrived. Can we get the picture up there? There's two pictures that I took. One was as it was getting set up, and, and then the next one is like the, the whole house of prayer, just packed with people. It's 100 or so Israelis came. It was a Hebrew-speaking event, and its purpose was to go beyond religion and have a night dedicated to relationship. And the rabbi who led the evening, Rabbi Dov Zinger, is a dear mentor of ours, just like a righteous, holy, good man. His goal was to guide people to a place where they're beyond religion. They're beyond any rituals, a place where they can walk outside, find a place in the mountains and just enter into a conversation with Hashem. And I found his guidance so good, so pure, so true and so relevant to everything that we're reading and living through that this is obviously what I'm supposed to share with the fellowship. And so I have an instinct. I don't need to talk to God that's just me. I'm Jeremy. I'm just like that. I'm like, he knows what I know and he knows what I know and I know what I know. And look, okay, let's just keep our goal our oriented here. We got to build up Judea. We got to build the temple, be good people. Let's. I don't really need to take the time to talk, but it's not true. And I don't know what I know until I open my mouth and speak or write until it's voiced and crystallized in words. I actually don't know what I know. And it's not clear for me. And if it's not clear, it's simply not clear maybe not even for God, because it's not clear yet until I clarify it. And so let me give you this example from last night that really hit me. So the rabbi asked, would someone share what they would like to pray for? You know, nothing too, nothing too personal, just an example so we can talk about this. Something they'd like to materialize in their life. So one young man stood up and said, I just planted sunflowers in my garden and I really want them to grow. And I, I just love that. That was just such a cute thing for him to say. And the rabbi then asked, well, what are you asking for? You can go a little bit deeper and discover more about what you're asking for. Why do you want your sunflowers to grow? He says, well, because it'll make my garden beautiful. He says, okay, mele kach. And for what purpose? It's like, why do you want your garden to be beautiful? He says, oh, when I see a beautiful garden, it's like my heart opens up. It's like, oh, so you're not just praying for your flowers to blossom. You're flowing for your heart to open up. That's beautiful. And I was like, wow, like, until you start articulating what you're really asking for, you don't know what's at the heart of the matter. And so I just want to share the experience we had and what we learned, because maybe that's the work of this week. That's like the homework of this week, that everyone just find time and to live out this lesson from the story of Bilam, which is obviously just like figuring out how we can integrate this reality that's beyond religion into our lives. And Rav Dove said there's a code for this exercise. And the code is more memorable in Hebrew because shesh besh is backgammon in Hebrew. And the letters in Hebrew work really well. Shesh toda Besh. But we'll do it in, he- in English. And the code in English is SPTPs. And so the first S is silence. Just getting outside in a quiet space and just being quiet with yourself. That's worth the entire exercise. We have so little time nowadays in silence. The TV is on, the radio is playing in the car. Our phones are notifying us about every WhatsApp and email. Just finding time to be quiet is so valuable. And it's the only way to get in tune and to get in touch. And, you know, when things slow down and you want to begin, start with praise, S-P, silence, praise, the moon, the stars, the mountains, flowers, a blade of grass. All of it is absolutely amazing. How do you know when you've praised enough? You have to wait until you say, wow. You need that moment of just wonder and amazement to just, it, it's an opening and it opens us to a closeness. And then once you've felt that wow in their place of silence, thanks. Toda, thank you for my life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for your health. Thank you for your home, your mind, your eyes. deal and I joined the group together and we actually went off into the mountains and behind our home, um, we had this exercise because we could actually practice it together. And as far as I was concerned, that was the best day, date night ever. And by the time Tila was ready to pray to make a request, her whole prayer changed. She just said so many thank yous. What she wanted to ask for just disappeared. Just through the process of gratitude, she had already been transformed. And what she wanted to originally ask for wasn't even an issue anymore. And she began praying for someone in her family. And it's like, wow. So it's after thanks, we go to Bakasha to request. It's like the natural state that in times of trouble, we call out to God, we feel the squeeze, we need help, we call out for help, but that's not the root. Um, that's like, actually that's the root of the word prayer in English is to beg, but that's not really what tefillah is. And in order to align it, um, the best way is a request coming from a different place. It's from thank you and thank you and thank you and thank you. And then to make a request, It changes the dynamics and that movement of that prayer, absolutely. And then to be in silence. And so, can we get up the code on the on the screen here so people could take notes? S P T P S, silence, praise, thanks, pray, request, silence. And so in Hebrew it's shesh sheket shevach, toda besh bakasha sheket, and that was such a beautiful formula that I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. S P T P S. That's it. Silence, praise, thanks. Prayer silence. People left the house of prayer and each person found their own spot. And like Ari said at the very end, people just started calling out to God like a hundred chauffeurs blasting to the sky from all over the mountain. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. It's like everyone alone, but yet somehow all of us together were all calling out to God. And so many people. They carry around so much pain and anxiety and frustration and anger and bad feelings, and they carry it around. They don't even know what to do with these feelings. And let me tell you, going out into nature and just letting it out, it felt like there was such a healing happening. And after such a crazy year and the political insanity and the social distancing and the COVID chaos and isolation, it's just what everyone there needed. And you know, our fellowship put the electricity into that house of prayer that allowed for those lights to be on, for the speakers to work and brought that healing to Israel. And you know, we're just getting started. And so on this day that Jerusalem started to crumble, the day that our spirit became rigid and our relationship became a religion, this is the time to go out into nature, find a quiet place until we're comfortable, feel the silence, look around until we feel amazed at this marvelous and wondrous world and the wonder and beauty of creation until we say, wow. And then we thank God for all the blessings in our life. And then we can pray, make a request and then return to silence and see what happens. Listen, be aware, tune in. In that space where your phone is off, there's an opening then for relationship. And our turn away from religion and our turn toward relationship, that's our fixing on this fast day. On this day of brokenness, Zachariah says, these days are going to become holidays. That's how it's going to happen. Learning from our mistakes and pushing into a relationship. And I can't feel, but just as our fellowship continues to grow together, as it continues to meet together, that revolution from fasting and celebrating, it's like it's happening right before our very eyes. And so... You know, right as Bilam turns to God for the first time and says, hey, can I go and curse the people of Israel? God responds, do not curse this nation. He him, because they are blessed. It's like, God doesn't need to bless them. They are just blessed. That's the reality. God had already blessed them. And you don't need to bless them because they are blessed. It's like, you can't curse them because they are blessed. That's just the reality. And as soon as I read that, I thought about every time we end this fellowship I always end with a blessing from Zion. And I was thinking, wow, you know what? That's just the reality. All the members of this fellowship, they're just blessed. They're blessed from Zion and they're blessed from Judea. And I just hope that what happens here at this gathering on Sunday blesses and shines with you throughout all your week. And so know that you are blessed from Zion. Yivarechecha Adonai ve'yishmerecha Yair Adonai Panav elecha v'yichoneka. Isa Adonai Panav elecha Lecha Shalom Shalom my friends
2: To join the Land of Israel Fellowship To attend our live interactive Zoom sessions To participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events Or even just to binge on past sessions Click on the link below Or go to thelandofisrael.com Backslash fellowship And join our family of hundreds of people From around the world Broadcasting light from the land of Israel, live from the Judean frontier.